Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's another conversation with Agility by Nature, and uh, it's with me again, Ian Gill. We're still in lockdown. It's uh, February, and it's Monday. Um, it's been a very, very cold week before and into the weekend, so I wasn't going out very much. So I thought we'd do some transformation, something internal. So the bedroom was well overdue after six years of a repaint. I actually put quite a lot of planning into my repainting job, masking tape, proper proper paint, proper brushes, and dust sheets, because I decided, wisely or unwisely, I'm not moving all that heavy furniture. I'm gonna push it into the middle and cover it with plastic sheets. It was all going very well, if you think, standing on top of a 12 foot, uh, 12 foot step ladder, which is difficult, cussed, and wobbly, until such time as the lovely Mrs. Gill came in and said, we've got a problem. We've got burst pipes. I had to get down the ladder and sort that out. So my change and transformation program was suddenly off course with the real life emergencies around me. Later on, after trying to deal with my painting again, I gave up and I thought I'll have to deal with this later. So I missed my deadline that I ridiculously self-imposed. I was having another warm shower to let the ills of the day go past when another burst pipe hit me. Such is life, such is life. If that's how hard it is to paint a bedroom, what is the transformation like of larger organisation? Fortunately, I've got a real expert and I'm really pleased he's come to join and talk about that. It's Chris Folks, everybody. Hi, Chris. How are you? Hi, Ian. I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> so I had to I had to get my painting story as a cathartic moment and as, as a sort of way into uh, transformation. Thank you so much for joining today. And I have been snooping around your very, very lengthy uh, LinkedIn profile. Uh, and just to give people a bit of a flavour uh, of what you've been, I mean, you've been a management consultant at Coopers and Libran, you've been a marketing, European marketing manager, uh, and you've been founder of your own company. You've been the CIO at Confuse.com, CIO at MindGym. You've been a CEO, head of digital strategy at Old Mutual for five years. You've been a digital program and Euromoney institutional investor, global head of development there, um, head of delivery, head of offshore delivery at Direct Line. My word, you've played with some big companies. The things that stood out for me is, first of all, there's a lot of international in there. I mean, I, I spotted Sri Lanka, New York, London, Scotland, <laughs> um, uh, Paris, Milan. You know, it's a very international profile. Um, you like the insurance and retail by the looks of it, but insurance seems to be a real thing for you. But by what? It's all transformation. It's all change. It's really a strong line. And it's lovely to talk to a practitioner. Is it? Is change where your heart is. It's, you know, I'm not a man who can stick with the hand drive. Is change where your heart is. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all about helping organisations understand the roadmap to change. Yeah. Um, and what's really interesting is that I've, you know, I've spent my career in IT doing nerdy development stuff. And that's brought me from sort of low level hacking code all the way to sort of advising the boards of senior of big big companies and a lot of it's different but a lot of it's the same and the thing that's the, the the golden thread that runs all through it is companies inability to understand change yeah yeah the, the mechanisms of change the processes of change the, the the risks of change and the the bigger the company you deal with the more scared they are by change yeah um, and that brings with it a whole new layer of problems. Um, and I find that fascinating. I think just from an intellectual point of view, I find it, it's like doing a very, very complicated four-dimensional crossword puzzle, trying to, trying to help these companies overcome that fear. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's quite interesting you talk about the, the large companies. These are very successful companies. You know, they make money. They've been doing whatever they've been doing very, very successfully. Is it because they're just so attached to the, the way it is and they got so good at honing their, optimising very small bits of improvement that they've forgotten how to deal with change? Or is there something else going on there? No, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that's, uh, in a nutshell, the core of the problem, that companies usually start off small 
everything starts off small, I suppose, one day. Yeah. And usually by building something and being good at it and coming up with something new and sort of market changing, uh, usually driven by entrepreneurial, creative folk uh, who have finally honed skilled or, or are lucky maybe yeah. in, in stumbling across a, a market niche and build something amazing. Yeah. And they will then get that amazing thing to a level at a point where the company then needs to transform itself in order to gain scale. Yeah. Some of them never manage it and then sort of disappear, uh, forgotten by the wayside. And some of them manage that, manage that transformation very well and become huge companies. Yeah. And often in the process of becoming huge companies, forget where they started, you know, forget and lose all those skills that they had at the very beginning. And all for good reason. I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of us will have spent many years through the sort of the 90s reading the books by you know, Jeffrey Moore's books about crossing the chasm and the rest of it, learning how in order to address a maturing market, you need to change internally. You can't use the same tools and the same skills that you learnt at the, you know, when you were sort of hacking the product exactly. out of the ground at the beginning. Uh, you need to learn new skills in order to grow that company. And, and those skills are all about achieving scale. And achieving scale is all about fine tuning at the margins. It's about managing large numbers of people, uh, keeping costs down, uh, grow it, managing growing complexity, managing risk at scale, uh, of, you know, avoiding any anything that could affect your brand, and all of those extra skills that you learn to you know to to build a, 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 on top of your business have the unhappy effect of stifling creativity, because the two find it very very difficult to coexist. You know, the sort of things that make you good at running a big operation are the sort of things that drive creative folk completely balmy. Yeah. Yeah. And so very quickly they'll leave and go and form their own companies and, you know, doing different things and disrupting other markets elsewhere. But generally they don't stick around the big, the big companies. Mm -hmm. um, and a few years later, those big companies will suddenly realize that the, 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 the products that have made them big have become superseded or just become old you know, and have got to a point where they're, you can no longer incrementally improve them. They need, something brand new to, to kickstart a new business line. So those companies said, ha we need to become creative again. We need to rediscover that ability to innovate. Um, but how, where do we start? Quick, let's go and, you know, let's do some things. And that's where the trouble starts. Because usually there is, there is no real roadmap um, to how to get from that big beer moth of a company back to that small creative um, company that can innovate and disrupt a market. And the, the path is not very well trodden. There aren't that many companies that achieve it. There are a few. You know, yeah. Apple is the obvious example of a company that consistently manages to reinvent itself. And so everyone thinks, that, oh, well, we just need to be a bit more like Apple. Yeah. And, that'll, and that'll get us where, to, where we need to be. And there's some truth in that, but the... Yeah, unfortunately, the devil's in the detail and being a bit more like Apple doesn't just mean sort of wearing roll neck black sweaters and um, and shouting at people. <laughs> well, um, there's still some companies think shouting is the answer to everything. But uh, I, I think that's fascinating. Is there are we saying that? OK, there's. Is big always going to have this problem and only small can really be the genuine innovators, putting aside Apple, which is beyond large? Um, well, there are other examples. So, yeah, but they tend to be exceptional. So Amazon's another example that's often quoted. I think the difficulty is when the pendulum has swung so far one way, right. it's very, very hard to, to, to bring it back. I mean, I think the, the skill that Amazon, that Amazon has, that Apple refound was that they never quite lost that spark they 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 kept on innovating all the way along right whilst growing at scale in parallel whereas many companies oscillate they'll grow they'll they'll build something 
they'll think, oh, that'll do us for the next 10 years. So they think, oh, yes, you won't, we won't bother innovating again. We'll just squeeze the life out of that product. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, they come back and think, oh, shit, we need to start again. We need to go and innovate again. And then by then they've lost all of those skills. They've forgotten how and all the people have gone. That's a really um, interesting point because I have worked with some, I think you and I were talking about this last week, actually, that some companies, to a certain extent, some of the government agencies, where they've forgotten how to change, do development, even. They kind of hollowed themselves out through outsourcing or offshoring or whatever. Um, and so their, their, their attack, me attack mechanisms seem to have been blunted. Very much so, yeah. And also, the, as I mentioned, the... You know, there is no well-trodden path to finding it again. In fact, there's lots of false, uh, false starts that many companies fall into. I mean, the first, the one that always makes me chuckle is when companies uh, appoint a head of innovation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can almost imagine the conversations at the board saying, right, who should, we, need, we need to do this. We need to do it. You know, we, we need to make a big song and dance about it. Who should we get to head this sort of innovation team? You know, and, you know, they, they'll look around and they'll find, right, who's on his way out anyway? Um, you know, who can we sacrifice? Yeah. Uh, you know, poor old Fred, you know, this, this will be his last chance, his last hurrah. Um, and so we'll put him in charge of innovation. And, and you know that innovation in that, in that, in that world is rather like special projects. It's, yeah. it's one, one step closer to the, to the door. Okay. Um, so there's lots, of, there's lots of signs that you can tell that the company's about to about to really screw up and waste a lot of money in doing this and i hate to say this but one of one of the things that that um the, one of the signs that i often pick up on is a company that says that the kicks off an agile transformation a company that is as yeah. far away from agile as you can possibly imagine yeah, yeah. announcing yeah suddenly that it's got religion it's big it, it's 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 got lots of expensive strategy consultants in and they're going to undergo uh, a, a, an agile transformation and usually you know that's where you know i sort of sigh a big sigh and think oh well that's no yeah that that's that's a damn sure way of losing you're wasting a lot of money and, and achieving not very much yeah and and i hate to say it but a lot, lot, a lot of the fault there is ours it's us we agile practitioners you know we, we agile folk who bang on about agile all the time um could, could, could have created a huge amount of confusion in the market yes and we often talk about agile as if it's a sort of silver bullet as if it is the the thing that's going to make you rediscover creativity and become innovative and all the rest of it and and people you know possibly not having done enough homework having just read the sort of the two paragraph article in the in-flight magazine think oh agile transformation that's what i need um and then lots of bad things start to happen uh yes i, I can't say i disagree with anything you know that's I, I, I always think whenever I hear the word agile, uh, sorry, agile transformation, you think, let's see how if they can get past the nine months point where everyone's fed up and bored. So at the beginning, everyone's happy. And then some, maybe some small things happen that you think, oh, that's quite good. And then by nine months, the middle management's disenfranchised, fed up. And the white blood cells of the organization saying, right, well, I think we've had enough of that. Let's get rid. Uh, and it's all squeezed away. Um, Agile and digital, though, have slightly become coupled as, you know, as organisations. We talked about the big company feels they've got to, the imperative to really now think about change has got a lot stronger, I think. Whereas perhaps being agile, you could say it was a good thing to do, is a nice thing to do. Now it could be your main way of surviving in the future, especially now. I saw you wrote an article about digital transformation and, and the main missteps it starts with a website queuing the uh, the website designers. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the digital missteps? Because I think that was really illuminating and tells us quite a lot about the way senior companies are thinking about these things. Yeah, and the point I was trying to make in, in, in that article was really that companies think about this sort of one step at a time. And and if you don't live in that world, if you don't think, if you don't live in a digital world, if you if you are you know the CEO of a successful organisation of being told that you need to get digital, you generally tend to sort of pick pick at the first thread and often in the you know in many cases that first thread will be well we need a website or we need an app uh, we need to sell our current product online and so a lot of investment will go into that uh, a lot of razzmatazz and then finally the website will be launched 
but actually nobody really picks up on it. And, and, and that's suddenly people realize that it's because the products don't fit, that the, the digital channel isn't appropriate for the current products. Uh, so we need to build some new ones. So we need to innovate. And all of a sudden, the problem becomes one of innovation. And so you build some new products and you put them on onto your digital channel and nobody buys those either. Um, and suddenly you realize, oh, so you scratch your head again and say, well, well what have you missed again? And so there's the, the, there's a sort of uh, the, the next thing generally is, oh, well, it's because internally we, we, we haven't really internalized this. And we suddenly realize that that to become properly digital, we need to bring all of the different bits of the business into it. And it's a co it's a joint problem. So all of a sudden it becomes a corporate transformation as well. And so bit by bit, companies discover that actually build, becoming a digital company isn't just one thing. It's a lot of different, different things that have to happen in parallel. Yeah. And unfortunately, often it takes companies five years before they recognize this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the point I was trying to make in that article was that actually if companies got better advice earlier on, they would suddenly realize that it's a hard graft and tackle a large number of things in parallel. But that's not a very appetizing uh the challenge and companies generally don't want to go down that route because quite rightly it feels hard and it is hard isn't it hard i i love the article it's actually on linkedin i'll, I'll put a link at the bottom I, I like the way it's like cue the research team cue the agile team cue the rebooting team cue the insight team all one after the other spending a lot of time actually i quite like the um we will build an app and a website and therefore the young people will love us as much as the old people i thought yeah, I've seen that too. So you are someone who's been in the senior roles. You have been Mr. Rescue and Mr. Reboot. When you're confronted with the bloody hard job, not as bad as painting my house, but the bloody hard job, what's your thoughts? How, how, there is no playbook, but what goes through your mind when you're setting foot through the door thinking, what do we do here? So there, there is no playbook. But there are a few tools that I found work well. And... The, the first thing I try to tackle is a problem of vocabulary. Yeah. Um, because people generally don't know what they mean by innovation, agile, digital. These are all sort of abstract cons concepts that people can define in whatever way they like. And often you'll be sitting in a meeting with senior execs and each person around the table will have totally different definition in their minds of the things that we're talking about. So for one person, innovation might just be, you know, about creating a sexy new product. For somebody else, it might be attacking a, a totally different market. For a third person, it might be the same products, but a different financial business model. So it's, it's all about making sure that you know what you mean. And so generally the first, the first step is to go to, to sort of wind back and say, well, what do we, you know, if, if we're talking, if we, what we're trying to crack is innovation, what do we mean by innovation? You know, do we mean product innovation? Are we talking about, you know, the people side of it? Are we talking about addressing new customers? So it's about getting, getting some first level definitions laid down. And the next part of the exercise, um, which actually was where it starts to get interesting is you then say, well, what does good look like? So if you've broken your problem down into its different dimensions, you can then say, well, okay, what, what does, you know, we can, we, it's probably easy to say what bad looks like. Uh, what does okay look like? What does good look like? What does great look like? And what does fantastic look like? You know, so you can get people to describe sort of the different levels of maturity along each of those dimensions and so you know bad might be well that's where we are today or, or it's nothing you know we haven't even started so that's level zero uh, level five might be that's what amazon does we want that well you say well actually okay so that's great so you've broke you've broken your problem down into its different dimensions you've decided what great looks like and you've broken it down into sort of different sections sort of levels between that but you don't need to be brilliant at everything in fact, very few companies need to be brilliant at everything. So it's about having achieved that, having broken this down and got a common vocabulary. And so, okay, well, let's set some realistic targets. When we've, when we've, when we agreed what a digital transformation of company XYZ is, in three years' time, we want to be here. You know, and it might be that in terms of our, you know, our digital channels. 
they need to be world beating because that's where we're that that's the market we're playing in you know we are a tech retailer you can't you can't survive unless you have the sexiest sort of digital channels in the world having said that our product innovation needs to be solid but not necessarily well beating you know we need to have a good product but it doesn't have to be the best product in the world for so you can so it, it's about agreeing where you need to be fantastic where you where okay is good enough and there might be other areas where you'll just say well we can't we can't do everything simultaneously we're happy to stay, stay where we are on these other areas so the, the technique i generally use is about going in and breaking breaking the problem down so let me give you an example if um if when you go into a large organization and say right we we, we you know agile transformation or we want one you know okay so you say well what do you mean by agile so typically after a bit of discussion you'll talk about you'll work out that when they talk about agile transformation they're talking about a number of different things they're talking about uh, firstly their inability to their in or their ability to innovate and their ability to design new products okay that's fine um, but there are other elements to innovation one what you know another element would be your uh, your understanding of your customers you know, are you a customer centric organization yeah. do you have do you have feedback loops do you understand your customers have you built the personas you know have have you broken your personas down do you, you know are they are they part and parcel of what you do every day okay so that's an, another another dimension of uh, of an agile transformation what else well what about data how well do you use data in your business you know are you you know do do you have every bit of information that you want at your fingertips or is everything in some God all, God awful mess, and it takes three weeks to get the answer to any question. Um, so you you start peeling back the innovation problem and, and breaking it down into different dimensions. Um, another one on top, you know, generally in terms of innovation, you you then you then hit technology. So yeah, how how good are you at building things? You know, forget you know you can design new products, but if you can't build them, you know where are you? So in terms of your your ability to build software or to build new products, where are you on that spectrum? So quite quickly, you can break your problem down into five, four or five big dimensions like those. Right. You can then say, well, where are we today? Because it might be that actually we're quite good at customers. We've done lots of, lots of analysis of our customer base over the years. We know pretty much who our customers are, who our customers are today, who we'd like them to be tomorrow. We've broken them down into personas you know we've done all of that great so we're probably three out of five on that and we'll we're, we're quite happy with where we are unfortunately on data we're nowhere we don't yeah we have no data data just dies in our organization and withers as soon as it comes through the door okay so so that's a big problem and we know that we need to fix that because in order to be a re, a, re, a really agile organization you need better flows of data um, and so on and so forth. so you go through this process and, th and then you break it down because obviously that same approach you can take to the data problem and take you know, so where are we on data and you can then break that down into its different yeah. dimensions some of it technological some of it sort of measurements and the rest of it um and that so that feels like a sort of a long-winded exercise but it doesn't have to be it can be done quite quickly and and what you find is that once you've broken the problem down you can then have a much more sensible conversation with the different bits of the business and actually start sort of describing the journey ahead in a way that the term agile transformation really doesn't you know it doesn't really tell you about where you're where you're going it just tells you about where you're not today um, and once you've got that vocabulary then not only can you start describing the journey you can start planning it and you can start setting some some targets and and, and breaking it down into digestible and deliverable uh, chunks uh, well I think a lot of people will be taking notes on that. Then they'll be after your, they'll be after one. Obviously, you, you do it so very well. Um, do you find the board really gets around that exercise of the common vocabulary easily? Um, sometimes it takes a few goes, and 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 some people will be totally resistant. So yeah. some, sometimes you fail, and some, but some sometimes you break through. Often. Um, and, and as, as I've, you know, I've done these many times and you, and you develop some tricks, one of the things that I've, I've found works well is 
one of the angles that I use, be it in innovation, agile, digital transformation, is very early on, I'll introduce the whole concept of customer experience and user experience as a key facet of the transformation. And partly because it is, you know, I think introducing the techniques of UX and and, and CX into an organization is a key element of uh, any real transformation. What I found though, is that it's those techniques are much easier to explain and convince senior execs on than the more generic stuff about data or dare I say it, agile, you know, agile software development. You know, most senior execs, uh, even the accountants generally are not very good at data. Uh, and they're certainly not very good at, uh, at, at agile software development and talk about Scrum and they'll, you, you can see them visu- vis- visibly shiver. But as soon as, but when you start talking about customer experience, yeah. A, it, you know, customer experience is quite easy to explain. It's a bit like motherhood and apple pie. It's very hard to disagree with. Once you've explained it, yeah. it's very hard to say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't think that's for us. And, um, and, and so it's quite easy to get that first foot on the door with even the sort of the, the more sort of hard nosed uh, and recalcitrant uh, executives on the board. And the good thing then is that the techniques associated with user experience are very approachable and and very useful in this context. And very specifically, the the techniques of, you know, some of the techniques of just measuring things, you know, we've, the the techniques of customer research are fabulous. And I've, uh, and I, I used this very successfully in, a, in, a, in a, an insurance company a few years back where the brief, the initial brief was, well, we need, we need to get digital. We need to start selling our products online. Fine. And, um, and my challenge was convincing the board that the products they had to sell were not fit for purpose. And they wouldn't have anything to do with this because they thought, well, no, the products, haven't changed much. They've, they've been solid, good products. We've made great, great margin of them over the years. Um, I, don't, I don't understand. Surely the problem is that you're just not building the right tools to, to sell it with. So what we did was we actually videoed some customers or some real people trying to understand the products as described on the website. Yeah. And there's nothing more convincing when you confront a senior exec than with a video of a potential customer in the right target market, uh, the right age group, the right, you know, the, all the right, ticking all the right boxes, being put in front of a website or, a, uh, or an app and just being completely flummoxed. And the videos you get of people literally holding their heads in their hands and, you know, and, and in despair at not being able to understand what they're shown. And then when you show these videos to the senior execs, they suddenly get it. You know, because it's it's hard evidence of the fact that their products are impenetrable, you know, uh, incomprehensible and not fit for purpose. And, and there are all sorts of elements of the tools and techniques around customer experience and user experience that actually um, are very useful in community, communicating with execs the fact that they're, they're not in a good place. So generally, one of the things I find is that you introducing UX and so user experience and customer experience into the mix early and using that as a sort of a beachhead into the conversation allows you to, without, um, yeah, allows you to show rather than tell that there is a problem that they can understand. And once they've got that, then suddenly the conversations become a lot easier. I I, I totally agree. I mean, I I like the fact that it's, well, first of all, it's, it's rooted in reality. I mean, sometimes I, I watched a video recently about guys really clever and he was talking about agile, but the science of work breakdown. And I just thought I'm struggling to keep up with this. <laughs> and how do I use it in the real world? I could imagine some people think like that. And if you've never sat, you know, I have sat in user trials where they put a new website interface. And that must've been 20 years ago, actually. 
and seeing developers watching and their eyes bulging as the as the person would refuse to click on the bit they were supposed to and clicked on the bit that they thought they ought to uh and you know it's a it's a humbling experience a very humbling experience definitely <laughs> just thinking about um we do have to change the technology sometimes though. you know some of these systems are perfectly adapted for an old world they're not necessarily supple and easy to deal with in a newer world um and that can be quite a challenge because you're, sort of, you're bumping into the architecture and you're probably bumping into the architects um what's your thoughts about maneuvering those big beasts and classically financial institutions have some and, and retail some very heavy back ends that they're not very keen to touch because they might not know exactly how it works and some very key business services are going through them all the time. Yeah, and it's often sort of cited as the, the you know the the immovable object yes. in uh, uh, in the world of transformation. You, know, you have the sort of the, the customer and the world outside is the irresistible force of digital transformation and the same boom you hit your head against yeah. a back-end technology yeah. that's still based on a 1970s mainframe um, still running sort of a, a core COBOL com components um, and unfortunately that is true and that is the world we live in yeah. um, the the counter example to that is I you know, I'm old enough that I was I was working in retail in the very early days in the sort of the um the late 90s where all of a sudden sort of internet shopping started happening again and the the big retailers had to relearn how to do sort of online shopping or had to how to sort of uh, do door-to-door -door delivery uh, of complex orders and what was quite humbling was that uh, i was working with uh Tesco at the time and Tesco by their own admission had you know big lumbering systems um, that were hard to change and certainly hard to change in a hurry and what they did was quite marvelous they, they said right we need to we need to create an online ordering capability and what they did was they just bodged it but they bodged it in such a brilliant way that allowed them to actually start servicing real customers, to allow them to start taking orders, to make deliveries. The bodging involved orders being taken on a website, printed out, faxed to India, uh, re-input onto systems and processed through. But they, and they and they just put they just forced it through. But by doing so, they learned so much about the whole process. Right. And and then slowly thereafter, they improved the systems, they changed the back ends, they, they, made, they made them all talk to each other and they got there. But I think the, the, the key learning from that episode was we're not going to wait for the systems to catch up and to be good before we start learning about what our customers want and about how we, should, how we need to change our business in order to serve those customers. And I think the, the, the mistake that companies even today making and saying well we have to wait you know we can't we can't do anything until we fix that back-end system yeah. um, once we've done that then we'll be right then then we can start innovating yeah, yeah um, absolutely uh it's you know you should you can start innovating today if there's a will you'll find a way to make it work you might not make it work at full scale but at least you'll be learning from today and you'll be putting together a, a very clear roadmap about where you need to be and that gives you a chance of getting there. Whereas this whole approach of, oh, we're going to re-platform. And once we've re-platformed, we'll be able to start thinking about what we do next is, is never a good strategy. And, and generally is just a, a substitute for delay. I, I love the fact, I mean, I think we're all familiar with incremental. Well, I'd like to think most of us are becoming more familiar with incremental strategies. When you said that they bodged it, I should imagine there was a thousand developer IT professional laptop slammed down. It's, you cannot bodge it. <laughs> but again a bit of lo-fi and but your key word there was the learning the learning was the key thing wasn't it yeah because you know as, as soon as you're learning about what your customers really want then you know where you're going next yeah. and the big mistake that come to companies make even today is that they they think that's the easy bit 
Yeah. They think that they'll put lots of technology in place and then they can just magically identify what their customers want and deliver it all in one go. And that's not how it works. You know, it, it's the, it's a painfully slow process and you need to start right now. If you didn't start 20 years ago, you've got to start now. Exactly. Uh, and, and the client focus was interesting too. And, and, and again, that comes through so strongly when listening to you. But a lot of CIOs though do come from the infra background more often than not in my experience. You think they, they'd be on top of the infrastructure a bit more than perhaps they have been in the past. Yes, but again, that really sort of plays into the whole dichotomy of the world is divided between those who can run and the one, you know, as in run systems and the, one, the ones who can build systems. Yeah, yeah. And harkening back to the beginning of this conversation, that companies very quickly forget how to build stuff uh, as they get much, much better at running things. Yeah. And they, they refine all of those skills uh, at running things efficiently at lowest possible cost, um, and they forget how to build things. And so, as you point out, the CIOs very often come from a run background. They come from an infra background. They're good at contracts. They're good at shaving cost out of business. They're good at managing teams of support people. Um, but they've often never actually worked in, a biz in an environment where they're building stuff. Then they've never worked in a new product development environment. And those skills you know, are hard to come by yeah. uh, and they're hard to build into an existing organization when they're not part of the, the, the existing, when they're not part of the DNA. Um, the, another mistake that companies make quite often is they think, oh, well, we'll, do, we'll, we'll go and buy a company. We'll go, we'll go and acquire company XYZ because they're good, good at building something and we'll bring them in. And from that, we will learn <laughs> how, to, how to build stuff. Um, and yeah. it's yeah again never ends well yeah because exactly the opposite happens what you what you what you do is you buy this enthusiastic team of self-starting entrepreneurs and watch them slowly die <laughs> usually filling in timesheets on an old sap system that's <laughs> exactly tomorrow would be looking for. yes well welcome welcome to megacore and here is here is your login to our oracle <laughs> financial solution where we'd like you to log your time in a quarter a quarter of an hour tranches exactly uh yeah we we, we we like we'd like to be digital but we're too busy um coming back to i uh, was saying earlier is you've got this wonderful international profile um as well and the world has got smaller outsourcing has become a near showing as it's often called now mm -hmm. much more that's just become the fabric of it um What's the best way, do you think, to use nearshore offshoring? Uh, and what's the wrong things, perhaps, to do? Because I think, it, again, I look at that whole area of, yeah, I can see where it might help. I can also see why it's not helping, um, because there's a lot of process in that offshore world. Yeah, and there's a lot of bad reasons yeah. for offshoring. Um, you know, it's uh, there's there's a sort of, a sort of running joke about why you know there's a few reasons why you should do it but there's lots of bad reasons <laughs> and uh, you know i've come across so many over the years um one of my favorites is generally oh we're really bad at building software yeah. you know, we don't know how to do it so we're just gonna let's go and see if we can then find some people the other side of the world and get them to do it for us yeah. instead yeah, yeah. um and another one that I came across re re quite recently was uh, somebody actually said, you know, what we found is that software engineers actually hate working for us. Um, <laughs> so, so we're gonna we're gonna move we're gonna move the team offshore uh, because we you know we, we think that might work better for us. Um, an another 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 really good line is, uh, and I, you know these you know I've, I've come across so many of these. One one was. Um, Uh, a company that says, you know, our software team keeps on telling us we need to be agile. Um, so let's go offshore and then the developers will stop bugging us with that. You know, they, they, they won't keep on banging on about agile. They'll just do what they're told. You know, so there's, there's a whole one bad reasons to go offshore. Um, the, 
but there is a certain ine inevitability about it. And the one good reason I find to go for going offshore is that you just can't get the skills. You know, you, do, you, you work in an environment where the skills are not readily available, either because you know, you, you, you're working in a saturated market and software developers just, there aren't enough or there aren't any specific skills, or for whatever reason, you know, the, those people with those skills won't, won't work for you at all. And the process of bringing on a development team is, is, is difficult at the best of times. But interestingly, what I've learned is that the process of, of developing a software team is the same, whether they're offshore, whether they're in, internal. Okay. Uh, that actually, if you're going to be bad at running a software development team, you're going to be bad at running them offshore uh, or onshore. So you, the com companies that offshore well are the companies that understand that what they're doing is they're acquiring a team, be it on the other side of the world, you know, be it in India or the Philippines or more recently, you know, the Eastern Europe or somewhere a bit closer to home. But the key thing is the companies that do it well recognize that they're still our team. Yeah, just because they work for, a, possibly they work for a different company and that they're in a different part of the world and they have a different culture doesn't mean that they're not part of us, my organization. And so the companies that do it well are the companies that understand that the best way of getting software built is, uh, is to get the, so the, the team who are actually, the team of engineers who are building stuff to form part of your organization, even if it's at arm's length, treat them like they treat them like your own, you know, talk to them like human beings, make, make, bring them on as part of your team. And that pays huge dividends. Yeah. Um, now, often, you know, companies approach this in exact with exactly the opposite intention. You know, they're saying, "Oh, well, we don't want any of that. You know, we can't we we can't work with developers. We're really bad at it. We're just going to do it at arm's length." That, in my experience, never works. The companies that that make it work well are the companies that invest in getting to know them, getting to know these people, even if they're in. India or in Russia or in Poland or wherever they are, actually physically going to visit them, make, you know, building those human connections, uh, making those uh, conversations real and making them personal, making that team, even if they're, the team is offshore, feel that they are part of your business and helping them understand your business. So one of the things that I always advise our my customers to do is, is actually take their company out to the offshore team. You know, make sure that the execs are visiting, make sure that the product owners are out there regularly and not just in a transactional way, you know, in order to deliver the next chunk of, of requirements to the development team, but actually to take some of the culture, to take you know, to, to show that it's a, a real business with real people working in it, that you're serving real customers with real needs. And actually, the, the, the most successful teams that I've worked with are the ones where the, 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 the company has actually invested on the social side of it as well, where they actually make an effort to engage informally with their offshore team as well as formally. And that pays huge dividends. It doesn't cost very much. Uh, sometimes it's complicated to do because it involves people traveling and it involves, you know, organizing drinks and parties and the rest of it. But, you know, for a small outlay in food, possibly beer, uh, you get a phenomenal return, far better return than you would in, you know, in, in any you know, other areas of businesses that I've worked with. Uh, because these people just respond very, very well. Uh, and that human connection then allows much freer flow of all sorts of other information you know it makes those conversations those subsequent conversations so much easier so much more natural and, and generally makes these relationships work so much better i so fundamentally agree with that i mean i have been involved with some offshore teams over the last 20 years or so and i think the one where we went to the ukraine actually mm -hmm. and he took us round Kiev, and it was a very intimate tour. Was, and this is a bridge. This is, but this is also where I went to school. Or this is where our favourite restaurant. And it was, and it's a very interesting historical fact. This is where there was gunshots in the wall and things like that. <laughs> past uh, events. 
Um, and it really was, um, it was both interesting and very human. And I think it disappoints me when you just think, shove it out somewhere else. It doesn't appear anymore. It's not a, a real thing anymore. Um, it's sad, actually, when that happens. It is. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't do it, mind you, people are pretty poor at dealing with their UK team. So maybe I'm not so surprised. And, and, and that's why, uh, you know, the other element is that these people are software developers and often they're not necessarily um, the easiest people to have a social conversation with. No. Um, and one, one of the challenges I find is that a lot of the companies are sort of busy outsourcing their software development teams simply because they don't want to have them around. You know, we don't want to have these oiky, nerdy developers. They're not, they, don't, they don't conform to our company culture. You know, we are full of beautiful people uh you know, we want to banish you know we've tried banishing the software developers to the to the basement and that didn't work and we tried to then send them off to reading and that didn't work so now we're going to sort of devolve them to the ukraine and see if that works better um and actually uh you know joking aside one of the challenges is persuading the businesses themselves that actually that skill i talking to software developers is something that they can't just uh outsource away yeah. you know whether, whether your software development team is in the basement or in reading or in the ukraine you still have to have those skills you still need to own that you know it's your responsibility to, to be able to talk to your software development team and to be able to engage with them and to be able to enjoy their company yeah. and uh, and once you understand that then you've you you've you've probably crossed a line you know an important line and you're probably well on the way to, to building great things. But and, until you understand that actually it is your job as, a, as an executive in a business, it is your job to be able to talk to software people these days. Um, There's gonna be a few, few uh, developers thinking, oh God, do I have to? It, it does work both ways, yeah. <laughs> and actually, you know, finding the way of getting those developers to want to talk to you. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, and but again that's you know that's your job you know your job is to enthuse them because they're not going to be naturally enthused so we're coming close to the end but uh, i really love some of the insights thank you so much um of course the big insights we're forming now is dealing with a world where we're inside a lot more about inside our houses rather than inside our teams and in our businesses and uh, 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 more happy. What what do you think now the execs really should have learned from the last 12 months of pandemic and change? Because I've got a feeling they could slip into old habits quite quickly. As soon as the vaccines um, worked its magic and everybody feels like they're safe to go outside, are we going to slip back into old patterns or have we got some really fundamental learnings now? I think there are some fundamental learnings that will serve us well um, especially in the world of offshore software development. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that businesses have learned, or they learned early on, is that actually you can do a lot working remotely. Yeah. You know, we can all do amazing things working from our spare rooms and our kitchen tables. Um, and it saves me the time of commuting into London. It saves me the cost of a season ticket. It saves me all sorts of time. Also, I can be available more hours of the day to do my job isn't that fantastic and so there's there's that that first learning the second very quickly thereafter people learned that okay it's great but it's not all roses you know there are some challenges involved you know people miss the human contact people miss the social engagement of being in the office i think the third thing that people learned and this sort of you know look back last year this was almost sort of month three of lockdown people suddenly realized that there's a third level which is actually we're trading on the relationships that we built while we were all in the office together. Yeah. It's all very well, you know, us, uh, we can work well remotely because we are working with the people that we know how to work with. But how are we going to forge new relationships? How are we going to work with new people? How are we going to bring on juniors? How are we going to train people in this world and so and i think that is one of the big on un unanswered questions of how how do you do this remotely and most very you know i don't know many companies that have cracked that and part of it is you know it's probably not easy you know it's not possible you know there, there, there's always stuff you can do um i i have you know friends and i see people around me sort of bringing on new staff 
especially juniors, you know, new new graduates or new recruits new to the workforce who are basically starting their work career working from their kitchen tables and it's very very hard because they're not they're not picking up on all the soft skills that you learn and so i think what people have learned through lockdown is that actually when when things you know when the vaccine comes and when we're all back when we can work together again doesn't mean we will doesn't mean we're all going to be trooping back on to the 7 to, to london bridge again but i think it'll mean that people will prioritize those activities that build relationships and develop skills yeah. and and you know all of the transactional stuff all of the sort of the box ticking and the the execution stuff well that can be done remotely but those those activities that build relationships that develop skills and that actually build those connections around the business those are the things we're going to prioritize um when we're about when, when we're out of lockdown yeah. And interestingly, that is what we try and do with offshore teams. And we've been doing that for years. It's about, you know, how do we focus on the, the small amount of contact time that the execs have with the offshore team in Ukraine or in India or wherever to make to build those connections as quickly as possible to get that to, to, to make that um, that information flow as efficient as possible. So interestingly, I think and I think there are lots of things that have been you know, lots of ideas and tools and techniques that the offshore world has already got in place that are actually going to flow back into uh, normal normal business practices as people start coming together again. Yeah. You know, it's not about, you know, we're not going to come together. You know, I think if, if people start going back into the office in 2021, it's not going to be to sit at their desk with their headphones on to bash out code or to write reports or to fill, it, fill out timesheets. It's going to be about uh, building relationships, you know, creating connections, developing new skills and doing that as part of a team. Yeah. And that will be true for you know, our own teams, but it'll also be true for our offshore teams. I love the fact that we're learning engagement and doing it properly. Well, Chris, I don't fill in timesheets on any SAP system, I have to assure you, but we have run out of time. It has really been a pleasure uh, listening to your insights and your view. I think the customer focus was, was a really, just to be reminded how important that is, and, but also how it's a great binding force for however senior the organisation. Um, if people want to get hold of you as Mr. Reboot or get hold of that experience and advice, What's the best way for them to contact you? LinkedIn is always the easiest way of, con of connecting. Um, always happy to receive new connections and uh, to start conversations. Absolutely. I'll, I'll put the link to your LinkedIn at the bottom of, of the podcast. Um, for everybody else who wants to contact me, we've, we've got a wide range of associates, as you know. Uh, and contact me at ian.gill at uh, agilitybynature.com. But I am also on the ubiquitous LinkedIn. Um, I have to think about repainting the last bit of my bedroom that I ever got through. <laughs> so I might be getting me painting overalls on. Chris, thank you so much. And I look forward to when we're out of lockdown that we will have a glass of something suitable in London town, I hope. Look forward to that very much. Yeah. Thanks very much, Ian.